If you would stand with me to read God's word, we'll be in Psalm 86 today. It'll be up behind me as well if you'd like to follow along. Starting in verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, you can be seated. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, If you're new with us, what we typically do is we preach through books of the Bible. And um, every January, as I alluded to earlier, uh, we pause that and we stop for a foundational series in our church. And really, it's around the idea of a whole life discipleship. And this year is, is no different, and it's what we've called a glory and good. And for these first two weeks, um, we are not looking at the, the process of discipleship, the how of discipleship. We're looking at the heart behind discipleship. And, and last week, uh, in kicking this series off, really it was about the heart of all things. And we looked at John chapter 17, which is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, right? Right before he goes to the cross and he's praying before the Father for his disciples. And what Jesus does in John 17 is he pulls back the veil a little bit to show us his heart, his heart toward the Father and his heart for his disciples. And not just the 12 men that he gathered with him, but also his heart toward us today as his disciples. And so today we will continue on to look at the point of it all, the purpose of, of everything. And last week I told you the purpose and goal of everything per Jesus and per the word of God is what? One word, glory, the glory of God. Now, you've heard that said, no doubt if you've been in church any amount of time. And that word glory, as we unpacked last week, we found out that that is one of the most complex, comprehensive words really in the biblical vocabulary. There is not necessarily anything concrete about the glory of God, except there is only one place where glory belongs, and that's with him. And it's not concrete because, listen, glory or the glory of God encompasses all of his attributes, so all that he is, and simultaneously, all that he does. So when you think about glory, that's what you should think about, and that's what we we talked about Um, last week. And so this week, I I further want to unpack this idea and how the Bible attaches these two words actually together, glory and good. Because not only is glory or the glory of God the ultimate purpose in all things, our life, this church, etc., etc., but that glory or the glory of God is actually the ultimate good. The ultimate good. But Psalm, another Psalm, before we unpack Psalm 86, Psalm 115, verse 1, a very familiar verse. It it says this, look at this. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, we, you, we give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Leave that up there for just a second. What's the repeated phrase there? Not to us, not to us. 
Now, if you, you've heard anybody teach you how to study your, your Bible or how to interpret passages at the most basic level, one of the things you look for is what? Repeated words, repeated phrases, maybe repeated stories in the gospel, right? If it's in there once, it's incredibly important. If it's in there twice, you'd really better pay attention to it. If it's in there three times, like laser in on it, right? But here in this one verse, you have repeated not to us, not to us. It's as if the psalmist understands and knows the nature of our human heart. That glory most time does not terminate on God, who is the singular source of glory. It terminates where? Us. Us. So it's like he's reminding his own heart and any audience that will give this verse any level of insight, not to us. Not to us. Even things like, and I love that Hope Clinic was up here. The the glory of Hope Clinic is not to the Parks Church. It's not to the men and women that serve at the Parks Church. It's not even to those that they serve. The glory of all things, including Hope Clinic, is what? God's glory. Why? Last week, the purpose of all things, God's glory. And so we have to be reminded not to us, not to us, but to your name is the glory. But Psalm 86, it's interesting introduce this idea, and I'll unpack it more, um, of something that I'm calling a divided heart. A divided heart. Where in one mindset, we as followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, we understand that all glory belongs to God. All glory, he deserves it, right? Not to us. But if you're honest, there is this tension, and if you will, this division in your heart. That there are things in your life that do not glorify God. And be honest, for some of you, they're, they're pleasurable, they're enjoyable, but you know as a Christ follower that there's a division there. That if everything is to terminate on the glory of God, but yet there are things in your life that don't, there's a division. A heart that both longs for God, but at the same time finds it in spaces and places resisting his love, resisting his call, resisting his desire for your heart. And again, like I've said, this is not a foreign thing in the Christian life. However, just because it's something in our lives does not mean that we just accept it as true. Just accept it and say, well, it is what it is. It's a divided heart. It's something that I have. And as you and I, we survey the Gospels, right? We call ourselves disciples of Jesus, right? As we survey the Gospels and we look at Jesus' life and his teaching, you will notice that he is very concerned with his disciples' heart. If you go back and you read John 15 and John 16 and then again John chapter 17, you will notice Jesus' language toward the heart. This makes sense, right? Because the heart, biblically speaking, is the seat of, or the place of all of our affections, where everything, all of our loves flow from where? Not our minds, but our hearts. Everything flows from it. These are Jesus's words, in fact. Even the things that come out of our mouths, what does Jesus say about that? The source of what flows out of your mouth finds its source in your heart. Jesus says where your heart is, there will also be your, your treasure, what you value most, think about it in your life, what you prize, what you lift up, what you love, what you're drawn to, what your desires most are. Jesus goes, there's where you know where your heart, the seat of all affection, that's where you know it is. 
Jesus would even use, maybe this is a bit confusing to you. He would say, you honor me with your words or your lips, but he says, your hearts are far from me. But, but wait a minute, didn't Jesus also say that your words come from your heart? So how can your words be over here and your heart be over here if from your heart your words speak? And Jesus goes, exactly. Exactly. And it's both. And Jesus uses both of those, I'm convinced, because he wants you to actually dig in. He wants you to actually be someone full of the Holy Spirit who is discerning where your heart actually is. Because if you just judge it based upon your words, you might fool yourself. It might indicate, but it also might not. You might have the language down. You might have the lingo you might be able to articulate, yes, all things glorify God. Yes, all of my, life, my whole life, but yet your heart be far away from Jesus himself. Now, I have publicly knocked this question, so I'm going to admit it, all right? And this question that often in small groups or gospel communities, if you've ever been part of those, or maybe even in your praxis group here at the Parks Church, and the question is this, how's your heart? Just all, yeah, oh, how's your heart? How, how, how's your heart? And again, I have kind of ridiculed that question. I have made fun of it. I have mocked it. But maybe, just maybe, per Jesus from the Gospels, it's the ultimate question. What's the condition of your heart? Where's your heart? How's your heart doing? Why? Again, because of Jesus himself going, it is the seat of all affection, everything, worship, glory, it will all flow from where in you, disciple? From your heart. That heart that we just acknowledged in many of us is divided, is torn. There's this tension. You see, a believer who just exists or lives with a divided heart tries to placate God with passive obedience and simultaneously tries to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And that is where some of you are exactly today. And that's why I don't want to jump to the how or the process of discipleship or specific, the things that God's calling us to do without going, okay, church, how's our heart? If we know the ultimate purpose of all things is the glory of God, not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. We have to do a heart check. And Psalm 86 uh, this week um, resonated deeply with me. One, because there are split between verse 11, these two incredible, and so if you have your Bible, just, just keep it there on those, those six verses. Um, they're split between verse 11, these two pictures of God's glory. I mean, look at it in verses 8 through 10. There is none like you among the gods. Nor, not are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made and worship before you and shall glorify your name for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Like that's that, that to me seems like this resolve in this like, like you alone are God. You're great, you're glorious. All the nations will worship before you. There's no God like you. You're in a category all by yourself. And then, and then look down at verse 12. So in light of that, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Not a divided heart, but my whole heart, my whole being. We were just singing about it so much. Like all that I am, Lord, in light of who you are, in light of your glory, 
My whole heart's yours. And here's what my whole heart does is it gives you thanks. Worship is another word for that. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. But where I want to look this morning is at verse 11. Verse 11 that sits between those two things, the things that I believe many of our hearts acknowledge. But verse 11 is going to be where we wrestle. This confession in verse 11 that says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. It makes sense that someone who just acknowledged this, those things in 8 through 10 and then 12 through 13 would then go, teach me your way, right? But this is where we will find our tension. A synonymous word with teachable or teachability or teachableness, any form of that word, is the word humility. And so this morning, I want to talk really quickly from verse 11 around three postures a disciple must have. A disciple that acknowledges, yes, I have a divided heart oftentimes. But what is the posture of a, of, of a disciple who is not content in just going, well, it is what it is, but someone who actually wants to combat for the glory of God this division? And the first is this. We see it in verse 11. Teach me your way. The first soil and the primary posture for a disciple who is serious about that is this, humility. Teachableness, to be teachable, is synonymous with humility. Why? Because someone who is saying, teach me, is going, I don't know everything, right? <laughs> I don't know it all. I have something I actually need to learn. And so we as a community, individually and corporately, must be a people who love the truth of God about not just God, but about ourselves as well. And that's what he's saying here in the second part of this verse, right? So that I may obey your truth, so that I may live out your truth, your truth about who you are, God, but also your truth about who I am, who, who my heart is. Now, this idea of humility is only done by the Holy Spirit. Right? So, so don't hear me this morning go, okay, we're going we're gonna to work on how to be more humble. Like I am convinced that that is a work of submitting. It is a posture of submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's oftentimes things that stand in the way of us actually being humble. Primary which, biblical example, pride. Pride. In fact, our scripture goes as far to say this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. Now, pride, I think, has this basic character, right? What does a prideful person look like to you? And not that that character is probably even all that wrong, but I can, think, I can see how there can be some pseudo-humility that, that is like, okay, that, that's, that's what pride looks like, therefore this is what humility looks like. Humility, and I want to hit some of those misconceptions about pride and humility first, a misconception about pride or humility is this, that it's something that fails to acknowledge and appreciate the talents and, and gifts that God has given you. That's not humility. Something that fails to recognize the gifts and talents and ability God has given you? No way. Right? It's not something that you, you push down. Right? Because God has given you those talents. God has given you those abilities. Why? For his glory. Not to you, not to you, but for his glory. So that's not humility. 
Humility also isn't a, a lack of ambition, a lack of desire or, or excellence. Now, pride is terminating those things on the wrong thing. Pride looks like that glory going to us, to us, and not to the name of God. Also, humility is, is not failing to acknowledge God's work in you. No, ultimate humility would be actually acknowledging God's work in your life. Going, let me just, let me tell you the story of grace. Let me tell you the power of the Holy Spirit alive in me. That is one of the most humbling things. Why? Because the glory will terminate on the work of God, something outside of you in me. Um, a book that I try to read every year is, is Andrew Murray's book, uh, Humility. How many of you have ever read that? It's, it's not a very, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, on one copy I have, uh, the word humility is like this big, and then Andrew Murray's name is like that big. And I'm like, well, that's confusing. I don't think Andrew, I don't think Andrew Murray would be about that, but that's what they decided. Um, anyway, but within that book, okay, is some incredible stuff. Some incredibly rich things that will hit you right between the eyes every year. And one of them is this quote. He says, humility is the only soil in which the graces root. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. Humility is not as much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. He goes on to say, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. And listen, if this series has one point, that's it. God is all. God is all sufficient. God is all glorious for you and for this church. So let's follow him with our whole lives. Let's follow him with our whole hearts. Now, there was a book put out not that long ago that uh, ran into an article where it was um, going through, and, and the book is called Humility by Gavin Ortland, original title, right? Um, where he was talking about these practices that help us kill pride. How do we kill pride, right? If, if humility is the soil by which the graces will grow, which is consistent with what our scriptures tell us, if our posture as a disciple is this, teach us because we don't know everything, the thing that will impede us from having that posture is one of pride. The very thing that will continue the division in our hearts is pride. So how do we kill pride? How do we kill sin? This is something we must be proactive in. And first thing he says, which I thought was very interesting, um, th there were 10 things, I'm gonna go through them quick, right? Another 14 point sermon, right? Was that we must be better at listening, to kill pride in our lives, one of the best ways we can do that is by listening. In Ortland, he, he says this. He says, this is actually a good window into how pride works. It tends toward the gradual tuning out of everything external to self. And humility is just the opposite. It wonderfully sharpens your attention toward the vividness of what is around you, including the perspectives and thoughts of other people. I just love that picture. It tunes you into the vividness of those things around you. It gets you out of your own self-glorifying mechanisms and way. Why? By simply opening your ears and your eyes and closing your mouth. That we would be a people who listen better, not only to the voices of our gospel community, but also to the voice of the Lord. His speaking, what, what are you saying to us? Maybe one of the best indicators here would be think about your prayer time with the Lord. 
Is it mostly spent with you talking? Is it mostly spent by you laying up petitions and requests? Not that those things are improper. I'm just asking, are, are those the bulk? Is your mouth going? And then you end it with amen and stand up and go on. How much space and time do you give to listen to the Lord? To read his word and not just go, that was good, but to marinate on his word. To think and go, Holy Spirit, what are you calling me into? What, how are you shaping my vision of who God is, the truth of who God is? Maybe what are you showing me about my own heart? We must be a people, if we're going to be humble, if we're going to have any air of humility, we've got to become people who are better listeners. The second, um, a, a practice of killing pride would be to practice gratitude. Practice thankfulness. Practicing intentional gratitude draws your attention toward the blessings in your life, the things that God has placed in front of you. Now, let's be honest. Most of us, we, um, maybe this isn't true of most of us, but some of us, we tend to see the glass as what? Yeah, half empty. We tend to see the things around us that are issues, our struggles, our problems, and we're really quick to identify those. And we're quick to identify those, uh, maybe not necessarily for wrong motives, but because we feel like we can fix them. We're good at identifying problems because so we go, we can rush in and we can be the fixer, or maybe a better word for that is we can be savior. Rather than looking around and practicing a heart of gratitude, the simple things in life that we often miss. Third way, uh, Ortland says that we can kill pride is that we can learn from criticism. Ouch. Now, this is not opening your life or my life up to cynics, to things said toward you that are not from the Lord that maybe would be dishonest, untrue. But this is opening your life up to people who love Jesus and love you that you don't necessarily know everything or have everything together. Amen? That's a humble posture. That takes humility. How about cultivating the enjoyment of life as attacking pride? Right? We are embodied souls. God has placed our souls within a body, and he's placed us in this earth to enjoy him. I mean, that's, that's about his glory, right? I mean, think about the, the first confession, the Westminster Catechism. What's the chief end of all men and women is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And part of enjoying God is enjoying the life by which he has given us, not think about and look toward a different life or a different version. No, the one that he has given us in his grace and in his power today. Do we enjoy that? Or are you always looking toward the next thing? Or how about this, embracing weakness? Where we don't look at weakness like culture looks at weakness, but we look at weakness as the Bible looks at weakness. And that it says that in your weakness, the power of Christ is actually perfected. So when we run away from weakness, when we run away from struggle, when we run away from acknowledging that we don't have it all together, when we run away from humility and we run to pride, we are missing an opportunity for the power of Christ to be perfected in our lives. And so as Christians, as people who believe the gospel, we don't step away from weakness. We actually step into it and we go, listen, we are not sufficient. We're not self-sufficient. We're not self-sustaining. I love this one just because it's really practical. How about... Um, laughing at yourself. 
And I don't mean in like a self-deprecating way because I don't actually think that's humility. I think that's a form of pride. But how about not taking yourself so serious and taking Jesus really serious? Taking yourself a little less serious and taking Jesus wholeheartedly serious. Letting things go that you're allowed to let go. Or how about the one maybe I'm, I'm guilty of? Not manufacturing pressure on so, much, so many situations. Anybody else guilty of that? That's just pride in all of its shapes and in all of its, its forms. He goes on to say, look at the universe. Study the expanse. You want to find something that's really humbling? Look beyond yourself. Look, stand, have you ever stood at like the base of a mountain or maybe at, at, at uh, right, the uh, Grand Canyon? Have you ever just felt yourself be really, really small? That's a good feeling. In God's expansive nature, he says, meditate on heavenly worship. Not earthly worship. And this is good. This is right. What we're doing is right. We're, we're mirroring actually what's going on in heaven. But actually think about what the angelic hosts are doing right now. And you don't have to guess. Isn't this amazing? He actually includes it in our Bible. It says the heavenly hosts are gathered around the throne of God, giving him what? Glory. And they're going, you are all honorable. You are all powerful. You are all glorious. And they're casting their crowns and all that they are before him. That's what's going on right now. And then he ends, and I think this is very appropriate. He says, bathe everything else in humility. You want to kill pride? Bathe everything else that we just didn't list in your life and in my life in humility. See, he says the fall, meaning Genesis 3, was caused by pride. And it resulted in the loss of our created glory. In contrast, the return to God is caused by humility and results in our heavenly glory. So if we have any shot of glory or glorifying God, it will only be in the posture and soil of humility as a community and as individuals. Humility is a whole new way of approaching life, Ortland says. An acceptance of our status as sinful and yet loved in the gospel and consequently a self-forgetful, non-pretentious bounce in our step that lives life to the full, embracing it as a wonderful gift from God. That's understanding humility. A grace-filled bounce in our step. Humility, teach us. That's just the first line. In verse 11, teach me, I need to be taught. And then there is this posture that continues on, that I may walk in your truth. There's submission, that I may walk not in accordance to my own law, in accordance to my own way, but because I am humbly posturing myself before you, I'm submitting to what? An authority above myself. The God that is perfectly pictured in those verses that sandwich verse 11. Like that is something that our culture pushes desperately in our lives, if we're honest, and our divided hearts push desperately against. Submission, authority. You see, as the people of God, what we are submitting to is King Jesus. That we have a king in a kingdom that we find we are under authority. We're under his authority, so we submit to him, and we go, listen, I freely submit because the last posture would be that we depend on him. We depend on him for everything. Not only do I want you to teach me, but I need you to teach me. 
I need you to show me what is good. I need you to show me that glory terminating on myself is not actually good because that's what the world shows us. That's what culture shows us. Glorify you, self-promote you, be autonomous, go after freedom, and all of that is pseudo. Independence, that's what we tout. No, as Christians, here's what we tout. We are utterly dependent people. And if you think about it, even in your own heart, even in your own divided heart, if you will, where has self-centeredness got you? Where has, has this pseudo-freedom pursuit or independence, where has that really led? Well, I can tell you where it's led, is it's led to a perspective of entitlement, that I deserve this, I deserve that, I belong in this place or that place. But that entitlement, if you are honest, if I am honest, leads to a very anxious soul, leads to a very anxious heart. And we might even be a little surprised, even in the church, even in the Park Church, if we ask the question and we could get an honest survey this morning, do you feel less anxious at the start of 2023 than you did last year? Do you feel more free? I think we'd be surprised how little actual freedom is in this place from a people who have been set free in Christ. Guys, we have more things available to us than any other generation. More affluence, more information, more content, more autonomy, more options. And what's the result? Anxiety, over-medication, unfree, use that word, cynical. Could it be that there is a better way? Could it be that, that the way of humility is the way that we're actually looking for? And when people actually understand where they are before the Lord, they actually understand and can diagnose through the power of the Holy Spirit this divided heart, that we will see and we will hear the voice of our Savior beckoning us again, beckoning us not to a self-seven-step program to fix you, but calling us to himself, calling us to his glory, calling us to be deeply, deeply, not just involved with him, but immersed by him to find joy, to find love, to find the things we're actually looking for. And this is where I want to end before communion and host, you can get ready. Um, I love when the word of God, and it's sufficient to do this every time, preaches exactly what Psalm 86 is saying, verse 11. It's Jeremiah 32. And this is the Lord speaking through the prophet. He says, and they shall, this is the Lord saying, and they shall be my people. Parks Church, as a community of faith, you're his. And God goes, I'll be their God. He has called us. He has called you. And this is what he goes on to say. I will give them one heart. Not a divided heart does God give you. God gives us one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good. There it is. And the good of their children. You see, the fear of the Lord, again, like glory, it's very deep. 
But the fear of the Lord from God's people is this, that we don't fear running from him, right? We, well, no, 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 hear me. We don't fear running to him. Some of you fear running to him. We actually fear resisting God. This is what the community of faith actually says. We, we fear God what it is when we run outside of your glory, when we run away from you. And God goes, that's where you won't discover what's good. When you run to my glory, when you run to my presence, that's where it's good. That's where it's perfect, not just for you, but for your children. And then he goes on to say, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing what to them? Good. How does God make an everlasting covenant with us? Jesus. The covenant of grace. The covenant that was bought and perfected by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we come understanding that this God, all glorious and all good, will make an everlasting covenant with us. And we as a people who understand that covenant, understand that grace, go, Lord, teach us. In all humility, teach us. God, we submit to you, we depend on you, and we will, last point, obey you. We'll obey whatever you say. Whatever you call us to, Lord, we'll obey. And so before communion, let us pray toward those ends. Father, Father, give this church a posture of humility. Give us individually in our homes, in our marriages, in our schools, in all the places that we find ourselves, postures that long to submit to King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would unite our hearts as one. Bring this divided heart together. God, may we not just confess it and do nothing about it, but let us confess it and in repentance turn from our ways. So Lord, rid us of pride. Give us ears that are quick to listen and mouths that are slow to speak for your glory. Even as we approach these tables, may we not take the elements hastily. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Host, you can lead us.